So today we are wrapping up our series, Who is This Man? We've been talking about this for the last five weeks. A number of us have been reading the book by John, John Ortberg by the same title. A lot of us have been in small groups, classes here at the church, uh, just going deeper into this topic of who is this man exactly. Uh, the, the title for today is Three Days That Changed the World. Here's what I want you to do before we even jump into Scripture. If you were to look back on the course of your life, what would be the days that changed your life? What would be those days of significance? And as you look back, you would say, this day marked me forever. I did a Google search of that same topic, the days that changed the world. And I have a pop quiz for you this morning to see how, how sharp you are. Just uh, by the way, if I would have taken this pop test, I would have failed miserably, so don't feel, feel bad. A couple of, or a few days that Wikipedia at least says are days that changed the world. I'll see if you know what they are. September the 3rd, 1783. Anybody? The day the Treaty of Paris was signed, ending the American Revolutionary War, granting the United States freedom, independence, and the status of a sovereign nation. What about November the 9th, 1989? The day the Berlin Wall fell, or at least started to fall. This one has two options because it's a little bit of a debate. August the 14th or September the 2nd, 1945. End of World War II. Maybe you would say the happiest day, the day that changed my life more than anything, whatever, that day of significance was the day that I got married. And that changed everything. Or maybe you would say the day that changed my life the most was the day that we had our first child. And from that day on, we know everything changed. Both of those days, for better or for worse, right? Our lives changed forever. I was flipping through ESPN a, a couple of weeks ago, and it just struck me, I, and, and I remembered it even this week as I was studying for this, that there was um, the NFL inductions into the Hall of Fame just a few weeks ago, and this wide receiver, Chris Carter, was on there, and he's crying, and I stopped because I'm like, why is Chris Carter crying on ESPN? And he said that being inducted in the NFL Hall of Fame was the happiest moment of his entire life. And I just thought, man, I would hate to be his wife <laughs> or his children. And I thought, in a, re, in, a, in a way, how sad. Because here's the truth, Chris Carter. Not that you're going to listen to the podcast or anything. <laughs> Nobody's going to know your name in 30, 40 years from now. And if that's as good as it gets, if that's the happiest moment of your life, that's not really much of a legacy. I mean, it's a great honor, unbelievable accomplishment, all of that. But the fact is, 30 or 40 years, nobody's going to talk about, I need to catch like Chris Carter caught. It's going to go by. So we're going to talk about the three days that I, that I believe did change the world forever. And in the course of this study, uh, we've talked about Jesus. We've talked about who is this man. We've talked about the idea that as he taught, people asked that very question. They said, who is this? And what kind of teaching is this? He's, he's one who teaches with what? Authority. He didn't just say things. He said things and stuff happened. Lives were changed. People were healed. We talked about this idea that he began to love and he began to show compassion. And a revolution happened because people, his followers, began to love and show compassion. 
in ways that changed the world. We talked about last week this idea of, of this following Jesus means that we understand how much he loves us. Just like we sang that song, that he loves us. And that changes us. And then as we are being changed, we go and live and we go and follow Christ. And others are changed because we understand as he is loving us, we begin to love other people as we love ourselves. And others are changed. So, so today I want you to, to think about this. We're going to talk about those three days that changed the world. But, but we're going to do it in an interesting way because we are six weeks from Easter now. And I, I just want to set a context for you to think about these days. We'll talk about them more around Easter. But right now to see how those three days not just changed the world, but they changed an individual. They changed Peter. And six weeks away from Easter, we are in a season that, that some people of different, um, all kinds of different Christian uh, streams celebrate as the season of Lent. And I don't know if you have uh, practices that you partake in in the season of Lent. Um, some people at school asked our kids this past week, what are you fasting for Lent? And our kids were like, what is Lent? And so over the dinner table Thursday, Friday night, we got out Wikipedia again, our, our trusty go-to source, and we explained all the vast resources of Lent and what fasting is. And so consecutively, our children decided that for Lent, they were going to fast homework, broccoli, and chores. <laughs> I thought, close enough. That's a start. We've got to start somewhere. So if you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 14. And we're going to, like I said, look at the example of Peter and his interactions with Jesus to see the reality is how these three days that changed the world changed him. And how maybe if we would be open and willing to hear the voice of God, those same three days that changed the world would change us as well. So let's set it up. Starting in Mark chapter 14, it's obviously getting to the end of the book of Mark. There's only 16 chapters. So this is the time where Jesus is, is on his way, headed towards the cross. In verse 27, Jesus says, You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That little part there, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's a prophecy found in Zechariah chapter 13 verse 7. Written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came on the scene. But it's a prophecy about the Messiah. And it says the Messiah will be stricken. He will be beaten. And his sheep, his followers, his disciples will scatter. So Jesus is reminding them of this prophecy. And then Jesus says, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And just remember back on the last few weeks, this isn't the first time Jesus has said this. But over and over again in the gospel accounts, Jesus reminds his disciples, I'm going to die. Now often, somebody like Peter steps up and says, you're not going to die, Jesus. Don't be crazy. That's not the plan. And then Jesus lovingly says to him, what? Get behind me, Satan. Maybe not so lovingly. But they don't understand it. As many times as Jesus says it, they still don't receive it. And so here again he says, basically, they're going to strike me, but on the third day I will rise again. And, it's, and he says, listen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. It's important. Hang on to that. Verse 29, Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Peter's like, these other jokers, they may abandon you, but Jesus, I'm here to the end. I won't let you down. 
In verse 30, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, Today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same thing. Peter says, even if everybody would, would, would desert you, and even if everybody denies you and goes their own way, Jesus, I would never do something like that. But what we do know is this day one, it's a day of death. It's a day of death. If you read on in Mark, what you see is that Jesus is betrayed by Judas, one of those closest to him. Jesus is arrested. Jesus goes through a mock trial. He is beaten. He is abused. He is unjustly sentenced to death, nailed to a cross. At noon, middle of the day, darkness covers the entire world. At three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus breathes his last, and he cries out before that, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then moments later, he is pronounced dead. Immediately the ground begins to shake. Immediately this massive curtain, a veil, that separated people from the presence of God. Only a priest could go and have direct access to God. This massive curtain, it splits into two from the top to the bottom. Signifying that there is now access to God through Jesus by anyone. And a centurion, a guard who is there guarding Jesus, he's an executioner. He's seen hundreds probably of death on a cross. Recognizes there's something different about this guy, Jesus. And he says, surely this man is the son of God. And Jesus' death, this day one, is central to the gospel story. It's, his death is the most important death ever. And the cross, that instrument of death, the most recognized symbol in the entire world. And so there's something about his death that is important, but we have to realize there's something about his death that is important to us. There's, there's implications that we must understand. And, and a guy like Peter, in this moment, didn't understand it. In this moment, he had a plan. He thought plans were supposed to go this way, but what we understand is this day one, this day of death for Jesus, has implications for us as well, because we, like Jesus will suffer in this life. We, like Jesus, will face pain in this life. We'll face death in our families, among loved ones, sometimes ourselves, in that moment of just, what's going on? A diagnosis or something that's confusing. Life will sometimes seem unfair. Life will sometimes seem unjust. And Jesus' death shows us that there still can be meaning even when life doesn't make sense. Tim Keller said it this way. When you suffer, you may be completely in the dark about the reason for your suffering. It may seem senseless to you, as Jesus' suffering seems senseless to his disciples. But the cross tells you what the reason is not. It can't be that God doesn't love you. It can't be that he has no plan for you. It can't be that he has abandoned you. Jesus was abandoned. Jesus paid for our sins so that the Father would never abandon us. The cross proves that he loves you and understands what it means to suffer. It also proves that God can be working in your life, 
even when it seems like there's no rhyme or reason as to what is happening. The cross proves that to all of us, that in our suffering, in our pain, when life seems unjust or unfair, that there can still be purpose, even if it doesn't make sense. Even if there's no rhyme or reason that maybe, just maybe, God is still up to something. Maybe, just maybe, there's more than meets the eye. There's this famous preaching professor, Ian Pitt Watson, who had this illustration. And he said, there's only two revolutions that have forever changed the course of human history. And the first one was what took people from this migrating, transient kind of lifestyle to settling down. And he says this, first, when somebody started to farm, that up until this point, humans had been hunter-gatherers. And they lived day to day, moved from place to place. There was no such thing as a home, but then there was a revolution. Everything changed. We don't know who came up with this. We don't know necessarily when it happened, but we know that there was a change. Someone noticed that if you took a seed, and instead of eating the seed, you dropped it in the ground, and then you waited, that that seed would then produce a harvest having other seeds, and there's multiplication. And so somebody figured that instead of just eating what was in your hand, If you planted that little seed in the ground, that seed would die. But in dying, that seed would bring an abundant harvest in life. And so when someone noticed that that would happen, civilization was changed. He understood this passage from John chapter 12 where Jesus is teaching. And he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified or die. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus, this is Jesus talking, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So that law that that is true about a single seed and it needing to die in order that life can come forth was something that revolutionized the course of humanity. And this professor says the second revolution does have a time, does have a place, does have a face. But it's the same principle. And it's Jesus saying, if I die, others may live. If I die, there's benefit, there's life that comes through that. And death is important to this story because it's our story. And that Jesus died that we could live. And the reason that that we need this is because Scripture tells us that sin results in death. And that if we're left on our own, we're trapped by these wages of sin. But that God has a gift for us. God has a present. God has made a way for us to be delivered. And that is by Jesus dying in our place on a cross, the day of death. So that's why it's so central to our story. It's so central to even in two weeks when we're up here and we're having a baptism service and, and, and we take those individuals and we put them under the water. Going under the water is a symbol. It's us identifying with Jesus' death saying, just like Jesus died, I'm dying to those old ways. And just as Jesus buried that old way, we're living. We're, we're dying so that we can live. We're identifying ourselves in death with Jesus so that we can live. So day one marks this monumental day, the day of death for Jesus. But day two gets little attention. Day two is often neglected, but it's so significant. We don't want to miss what's going on here. Let's let's set it up first before I tell you what it is. 
Mark 14, read verse 66. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and he went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, This fellow is one of them. And again, he denied it two times. After a while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, uh uh-oh, PG-13, I don't know this man you're talking about three times. And immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Do you remember a few weeks ago when we said how the the gospel of Mark was written? Mark wasn't one of Jesus' disciples. He wasn't a guy that was there in the midst of the action. Mark was written because Peter told Mark, the story. So Peter and Mark sat down and Peter's like, here's how it happened. And he begins to spill the beans and he tells the story and he says, Mark, this is what happened. And then this happened and Mark, then this happened. And Mark's writing and he's taking notes and he's, of course, he's on a Mac. So he's taking notes and he's getting all these details. Now, now imagine this. If you're telling the story, do you write in all these details of how you failed If you're just wanting to make yourself look good in the story. But Peter's telling these stories and he doesn't skip over the parts that make him look bad. He he adds them. He includes them so that we can understand. As he's journeying with Jesus, he still didn't quite get it. And so, as we just read, he broke down and wept because he denied Christ. And this day too is an interesting day. It's, It's a day... Of silence. Uh, around my house, if, if we want to play a game and I want to be assured that I will win the game, I, all I have to do is pick one game. And I'm like, kids, it's time for a game. And I feel like I just need a sort of a boost to my pride to win. I'm like, kids, we're, we're going to play a game. The quiet game. I can win the quiet game every time in my house. You introverts know what I'm talking about? I mean, we, we can do this. You guys don't think I'm an introvert, but it's easier for me to talk to you guys than like a table of three people. And you're like, that's strange. It is sort of strange, but hey, that's how we introverts work sometimes. So I'm a champion of the quiet game. But there's something about silence that's not always easy, that's not always good. There's something about silence that when we're praying and it doesn't seem like God is listening, that we doubt We question. When we're going through something and we're like, I need help, but it doesn't seem like anyone's listening or any solution is coming. All there is is silence. See, this day two, if you read about it in Scripture, you won't find much. Nothing's going on. And sometimes it's when nothing's going on in life that life's the hardest. We want something to happen. We want a breakthrough. We want progress, but it just seems like nothing is going on. And so day two is a day of silence. It's a day 
where Jesus is dead, Jesus is buried, and nothing's going on. For Peter, nothing going on means he's left to wallow in his regret, in his despair, because he had denied Jesus. But it's silent. What does he do about it? For some of us, day two is a day of waiting. We're looking for an answer. We're looking for the next step. Waiting for a door to open. Nothing is going on. I love what Ortberg says in the book. He says, the miracle of Sunday... The miracle of day three is that a dead man lives. But the miracle of Saturday is that the eternal Son of God lies dead. So Jesus Christ defeats our great enemy death, not by proclaiming his invincibility over it, but by submitting to it himself. If you can find this Jesus in a grave, if you can find him in death, if you can find him in hell, where can you not find him? Where will he not turn up? If you can find Jesus in those dark places, if you can find him in a grave when nothing is going on, then what will you go through in life where he won't show up? There's nothing. And that's the point of day two is is when there's silence and when it may seem like there's nothing going on, we know the end of the story, right? We don't have to lose heart. Now, the disciples didn't know what was going on. They weren't listening very well. And so on day two, the silence was deafening. It was frustrating. They thought that everything was over. This one that they believed the Messiah that would deliver them is dead and buried. There's nothing going on. But if there's anything that the rest of the story tells us, it's this. There's still hope, even in the silence, even in the waiting See, Jesus tells us in John 16, 33, he says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have what? Trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. He says, you you may be going through a time of silence. You may be going through a time where nothing's going on and it feels like your prayer's hitting a ceiling and bouncing back. You may be going through a time of trouble. But listen, remember the rest of the story. Don't give up. Take heart. It means be courageous. Because Jesus says, remember, I have overcome the world. You can trust me. Even when nothing's going on. Even when the waiting seems like forever can trust me. So day one is a day of death. Day two is a day of silence. Then there's day three. But again, remember, when you're in day two and you don't know the rest of the story like the disciples, and you're not sure how the story turns out, it can be difficult. But Mark chapter 16, starting in verse 1, says, when the Sabbath was over, So basically that means when day two was over, finally that time of waiting came to an end. Whether it's a day, whether it's a year, whether it's ten years. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. Okay, so they go and they buy spices because they're going to do sort of the embalming process themselves. What does that tell you? They weren't expecting Jesus to be alive. Again, 
If I'm Peter and I'm writing this story, I'm probably writing it in. And then on the third day, I said, hey, disciples, let's go see if he's back. But none of them got it. None of them understood. And so they go. And and one more interesting point. Mark is naming specific ladies, which just is is so against the culture of that time that, that these ladies are the eyewitnesses. But he names them specifically And it's almost in our modern day, it's almost like putting a footnote. Say, oh, if you you want to know that this is true in that day and age, just go ask Mary Magdalene. Just go ask Mary, the mother of James. Just go ask Salome. They saw with their own eyes. It's like a footnote. An eyewitness testimony is there. Verse 2. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed, frightened, terrified. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. Day one, buried in the tomb. Day two, but now it's day three, and he says, He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go tell his disciples. Now, listen to these next two words, they're important. And Peter. How important is that? That that he would say, Hey, you know, Peter, the one who just denied Jesus not once, not twice. But three times, go specifically and make sure he knows Jesus is risen. Go tell the disciples and Peter, does these words sound familiar? He is going ahead of you into Galilee. Isn't that what he said already? He had already told them, after I am risen, I'll go to Galilee. You'll meet me there. He's already promised them that. He's already told them this is exactly how it's going to happen. I'm going to die. I'll be dead for three days. I'll rise again. Come and meet me in Galilee. It's just as he said. It's just as he promised. And the angel says, there you will see him just as he told you. But they weren't listening. They weren't receiving what he said. He had promised them Here's the plan. Here's how it's going to happen. I'll be there. And they just didn't listen. And so on this third day, it's a day of new life. It's a day where Jesus is resurrected from the dead. And in being resurrected from the dead, it it demonstrates the power of God over death. The power of God over sin. The power of God over hell. And the victorious power of God to do all of these things is the overcoming power that Jesus Christ gives to us when we believe in him. That's why he says, take heart, be courageous, I have overcome the world. We can be people who live with courage and boldness and faith, not because of who we are, not because of what we can do, but because what Jesus has already done for us. And so this fact that Jesus has risen from the dead changes everything. And it changes very specifically Peter. He's transformed into someone that we can't even recognize because the gospel stories tell us he's bold, 
He's quick to speak, but he's also quick to deny. He's also quick to fail. And after Jesus is resurrected, and after Jesus is off of this earth, and his Holy Spirit comes and begins to empower his disciples, we see in Peter a transformed man. He's totally changed. He's no longer living in his own strength. He's now living in the strength that God provides. Acts chapter 4 is one of my favorite examples. And there's this encounter that um, Peter and John have with this man. And the power of God is on display. But the authorities who are watching see this. And here's what happens. Acts 4.13. When the authorities, when they saw the courage of Peter and John... And they realized they were unschooled and ordinary men. They were astonished. So now the same language that we have heard over and over again about Jesus. People were astonished. People were amazed. Now the disciples and Peter are out ministering in the name of Jesus. And people are astonished in the very same way. It says they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. That everything has changed and not because these men had finally gotten their act together. Not because these men had had finally intellectually figured out who Jesus was. Everything has changed because the authorities realized it. Everybody realized it. They had been with Jesus. Jesus had transformed them and given them new life. It's what the scriptures talk about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where it says, If anyone is in Christ, you're a new creation. Old's gone, new has come, new life is there. And and that's what happens when we surrender our lives to Jesus. When we say, I want to live for you, I want to follow you. That It doesn't mean all our problems go away. It doesn't mean all of our troubles are gone. Because Jesus still says, in this world you will have troubles. But we have overcoming life even in the midst of the trouble. Overcoming life even in the midst of the silence. Overcoming life even when life doesn't make sense. That we can still Walk forward, step by step, following Him. And so as we've spent weeks talking about this series, and as we've just delved into what does it mean if Jesus is who He says He is? And what does it mean if we can be who Jesus says we can be? And very simply, I would just say, It means everything changes. It means that we can understand the love of God. Our hearts can be full, not in what we can accomplish on this earth, not in what we can get, not in the the reputation and what fame and accolades and good grades and a successful job, not in defining ourselves by that, but we can define ourselves by who God says we are. And we can live a life that impacts this world that makes a difference because we're living out a life God has created us to live. It means the past doesn't define us. Things that we've been through, hurts, regrets, they no longer define us. God says if you're in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone. All things are new. So for some of us here, there's never been a time in our life where we've ever surrendered our lives to God. We've never truly turned from our sins and turned to Christ. 
And maybe through this series, maybe through these last few weeks, or, or even just today, God is stirring your heart. And my challenge to you would be, today could be that greatest, one of those greatest days. One of those days that forever changes your life. The Bible even says, today is the day of salvation. Would you listen? And in just a few moments, I'm going to pray a prayer. It's not a magical formula. It's not anything special. But if you are at a place today where you say, I recognize I need Jesus. I recognize I need help. And I believe Jesus is who he says he is. Then in just a few moments, I'm just going to ask you to sort of repeat a prayer after me. Like I said, no magical words, but just if it's the sincere prayer of your heart, God will hear that prayer and change you, transform you. But then there's others of us who we've been around church forever. We've been Christians for a long, long time. And I just got an email this morning from someone who was at our services last night, and they said, God has been speaking to me, and God has been calling me out to say, follow me. And they said, I just want to sort of let you know, Aaron, I'm taking those steps. And there may be some of you here tonight, you've been wrestling, or this morning, you've been wrestling with the decision, you've been thinking through it. it. It almost feels like God is just pointing out an area of your life and saying that. Maybe today would be a day where you would be willing to surrender and just say, God, have your way. Let's pray. With your eyes closed, I'm just going to ask you to just pray a simple prayer. And first of all, if you are here and it's just, there's something stirring within you that just says, I need, I need help. I need to be rescued. And I do believe that Jesus is who he says he is. I don't have all the answers, but, but I believe that part. And today I'm willing to commit my life, surrender my life to Christ. If that's you and if that's really resonating with you this morning with all eyes closed I'm going to ask you just sort of silently in your head in your heart repeat this simple prayer just say God please help God I know I've messed up I have sinned please forgive me save me I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe Jesus is Lord and Savior. I believe Jesus is who He says He is. I give my life to you. In Jesus' name. Just with our eyes still closed, if you prayed that prayer, if maybe even for the first time you've ever even uttered those words, God hears that prayer. With no one looking around at all, just sort of just for the holiness of this moment. If you're here and you say, I prayed that prayer, Aaron. I prayed it for the first time and I meant it with all of my heart. Would you be bold enough just to slip your hand up and say, Aaron, pray for me. I prayed for that prayer. Would you just pray for me?
Dear God, for every person, every man and every woman with their hands raised, God, right now I pray that you comfort them with your Holy Spirit, that you would lead them into truth, that they would be able to understand, be able to realize the significance of what just happened in this moment. That when we pray a prayer like that, it's not about us saying, God is going to listen to me and finally pay attention. It's, it's about us saying, we see in Jesus the one who can forgive, the one who can restore our lives. And so God, I pray that you would fill every person who raised their hand with your love, with your grace, that you would move powerfully in their lives right now. God, we thank you that you hear our prayers. We thank you that you still save. We thank you that you still set us free, God. I pray that over every man and woman who just prayed that prayer right now. And then for others of you, maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, but it just seems like through this series or or lately as you've been praying or listening to sermons or whatever, that, that God has just been saying, that area, that area, follow me. And again, with no one looking around, if that's you and you would just say, there's just an area that God is pointing out in my life, but Aaron, I need help. Pray for me. Would you slip your hand up and just say, pray for me on that area that I'll have the strength to do what I know God is calling me to do. And God, for all of us, with our hands raised, God, we are just acknowledging we need you. Our dependence is not in ourselves and what we can do. We need you and your strength your Holy Spirit to come and empower us, for some of us to set us free, for some of us to break an addiction, for some of us to have the faith to step out to where you're calling us. And we're just acknowledging we need you, God. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If you raised your hand and you prayed one of those prayers, either way, but especially the first one. Here's something I just want to encourage you to do. Tell someone. It's not too late to sign up for the baptism. And the, the, I think scripture tells us the first step that we take after making a decision like that is we are baptized. And, and you may say, well, why? I don't even understand that. Because what baptism is, it's a symbol. That we're identifying with Christ. It's a, it's, a, it's a declaration to others to say, I'm not ashamed of what Jesus has done inside of me. So externally, outside, I want to declare. I want to be identified with Jesus. And I want others to know what Jesus has done for me. And so I would encourage you to follow Jesus in that. If you raised your hand and you said, for the first time, I, I prayed and I really meant that prayer. Tell somebody. I would love for you to write it on the communication card and give that to one of our ushers and just let us know. I prayed this prayer. Just sharing with somebody. There's such a powerful part of having somebody else with us on that journey. If you prayed that second prayer, same thing is true. There's something powerful about sharing with someone else a decision that we made. There's a, there's a level of accountability, but there's also a level of celebration. Others can join with us in the celebration of what God is doing in our hearts. And so our ushers are going to come now. We're going to worship by giving our offerings and tithes. We're going to sing this song. I want to ask you, this song is like a prayer. Make it a prayer from your heart to God's worship God as we sing this.